Chapter Seven of Mars Is My Destination by Frank Belknap Long. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Penn. Chapter Seven. It was a Christ awful moment for her and for me. For her, because she had no right to be in the chart room or even on the ship, as far as I knew. And there was a look on the crewman's face that chilled me to the core of my being. It went beyond the anger of a duty-obsessed man, outraged by her infringement of the regulations. It was a completely different kind of anger. There was a savage cruelty, a killing rage in his eyes, impossible to misinterpret. It was just as awful a moment for me, because I wasn't sure I could get to him before he broke her wrist or did something worse to her. I'd seen a woman knee in the groin once, by just such an enraged human animal, and the memory of it had never left me. A strong man, turned maniacal, could kill with his hands in a matter of seconds. I'd seen that happen, too, and the victim hadn't been a woman, but a man as powerful as the killer. I crossed the chart room in a running leap, grabbed him by the shoulders, and swung him about, raining blows on him more or less at random. I just tried to hit him as hard as I could without caring much where the blows landed, so long as they resounded with a meaty smack where they would do the most good. My only aim was to stun and, if possible, cripple him in a terrible, punishing way, so that he'd release his grip on the wrist of the woman he'd been trying to hurt before she screamed again and her hand dangled with a sickening limpness making me want to permanently demolish him in slow and painful stages. For a moment I was only sure of one thing. My fist had smashed very solidly into his face at least twice and drawn blood. I could see the gleam of blood on his jaw as he reeled back, and I was almost sure I'd heard his nose crack. There was nothing wrong with that, but it didn't satisfy me. I wanted to turn his face into quivering jelly. But most of all, I was hoping, praying, that she'd break free before I set about doing that, because a voice was screaming deep in my mind that if she couldn't, he might still be capable of injuring her cruelly. She broke free. Just how, I don't know, because the punishment I'd dished out hadn't stunned him. He could still have fractured her wrist, judging by the look of blazing fury he trained on me. His determination to repay me in full probably explained it. He needed both of his hands free for that, because I could see that what he would have liked to do most was get a strangler's grip on my throat. The human windpipe doesn't fracture easily, as every experienced medical examiner knows. It's elastic and it gives and post-mortem appearances prove that you can die by strangulation with your windpipe intact. But I have a horror of anything like that, and I didn't intend to let his fingers come anywhere near my throat. I smashed my fist into his groin twice, putting so much shoulder-to-elbow resilience into the blows that he bent almost double, wrapped his arms about his middle, just above his groin, and went staggering backwards. They were below-the-belt beltings, but I didn't give a damn about that. Manhandling a woman just because she hasn't the strength of a male has always seemed to be just about the worst crime on the books. All right, 
attacking a child is worse but you certainly forfeit all right to queensberry rules consideration when you're called to account for using your strength against anyone weaker than yourself unless he or she has done something vicious and there's a hell of a good justification for it i no longer wanted to permanently demolish him now that she'd broken free but i had no control over what happened the deck of the chart room is all smooth metal and the polishing preparation that's used to keep it bright makes it almost as skid slippery as a skating rink if you happen to be thrown a little off balance he was off balance just enough to change his backward lurch from a stagger to a swaying spinning glide that sent him crashing against the base of a robot giant up to that instant the four robot giants had looked exactly alike but a robot in motion looks quite different from a robot at rest with its massive metal hands on its metal knees and its gleaming central section in an upright position the crash was followed by a splintering sound which continued for several seconds without stopping there was a whirring as well and a blinding flash of light came from the metal giant's conical head almost instantly the robot was in motion and the way it swayed as it raised its segmented right arm high into the air so alarmed me that i shouted a warning to the man i had just finished trying to send to the sick bay for a stay of at least two weeks the jerky erratic way the robot giant was swaying could only mean that the crash had damaged its internal gadgetry and it had gone completely out of control it was shaking and quivering all over and even its ponderous central section seemed to bulge a little as if from hunger bloat that of course was absurd but it's natural enough to think of a robot as human and take refuge in absurdity when you know that a cybernetic brain encased in a functional body can do just as much damage as a madman running amuck with a deadly weapon just as much more when it's out of control you don't want to face up to it squarely you shrink from it because some instinct tells you it would be dangerous to let the horror of it come sweeping into your mind too fast so you take refuge in absurdity you imagine things that are a little on the ludicrous side a hunger bloat a maniacal glare in photoelectric eyes but when you've done that you have to stand and watch the horror take place before your eyes and in the end you've gained nothing because when anything as terrible as what i saw sears its way into your brain the memory of it will remain with you until you die the robot giant's massive metal hand swept downward descending on the head and shoulders of the man who'd crashed into it it hurled him to the deck and flattened him out with a hammer blow that crushed his skull broke his ribs and tore a deep gash in his back a red stain spread over his ripped shirt i shut my eyes sickened there was a screaming behind me i swung dully about and went to her and held her head against my chest stroking her hair whispering soothing words into her ear i could do that without endangering the safety of the skyship because the robot giant had ceased to move with the descent of its hand all the whirrings had ceased and it remained in a bent-over position utterly rigid 
its mace-like metal palm still resting on the unstirring crewman's back. I was quite sure that no jury on earth would have held me criminally responsible for his death. It had been brought about by an accident I couldn't have foreseen. Every man has the right to defend himself when he's under attack, and not just my own life had been in danger. There was no doubt in my mind. Not the slightest. His rage had been homicidal, and he would have killed me if I had given him the chance. Justifiable homicide. There could be no other verdict, if the insignia the board had given me hadn't conferred legal immunity when an accidental death stemmed from my right to stay alive, and I had been forced to return to earth and clear myself in court. I felt no moral guilt, but still, I was badly shaken. I had been instrumental in causing his death, however unintentionally, and it's always better if a man can live out his life without experiencing the deep sadness that goes with that kind of knowledge. The only difference is moral guilt never leaves you and grows worse with the years. But there are so many tragic sadnesses in life that they have a way of merging into one big onrushing stream. And when you measure that stream against a brighter one, the joy stream, the scales seem to stay just about even with the balance maybe just a little heavier on the joyful side. Right at the moment, there was another big, onrushing stream running parallel with the sadness. The sober obligation stream. Or maybe duty stream would be a better name for it. We spend at least a third of our lives immersed in it, up to our necks, and swimming against the toughest kind of currents. Sometimes I think we could do without it entirely. What was it Baudelaire said about boredom? But well you know that dainty monster, thou hypocrite reader, fellow man, my brother. You could practically say the same thing about duty. But the stream is there, and if you just stay on the bank watching the other swimmers, you won't really have the right to plunge into the joy stream with a clear conscience. The first thing I had to do was get her out of the chart room before she collapsed. She was close to hysteria, and I didn't even want her to look at the body again. I was careful to stand between her and the robot, and when I guided her gently toward the door, I kept my hand on the back of her head and kept her face pressed to my chest. It was more difficult than it would have looked on a cinema screen, more awkward and less romantic, and that was the way I wanted it to be because nothing could have been further from my mind at that moment than the romantic glow I'd felt when I had been sitting across a table from her in a lakeside tavern on Earth and hadn't fully realized that Joan was still the only really important woman in my life. Oh, all right. You can't have a head that beautiful nestling in the middle of your chest without feeling a certain, well, a quickening of your pulse, at least. It can happen even in the presence of death, when you've just been shaken to the depths in a ghastly way. Perhaps because of that. Sex and death. Don't be morbid, Ralphie boy. Don't turn the clock back and let the old Freudian catch-alls of a century ago confuse and mislead you. Half of all that has been made clearer because we know now what man was like five million years ago when he was a very predatory ape. Sure, sex and death are closely linked. Dawn Man went hunting and slew a cave bear, 
and threw it down before his mate, all bloody, with pride swelling in him, and just the excitement of the hunt, the thrill and danger of it, made him want to make love in just as exciting a way. But sex and life are even more closely linked, and in life there are loyalties to consider, and one woman becomes more important to you than all the rest, and you don't need that kind of stimulation to enable you to make love to her in the most exciting possible way. The old stirring is still there, the death-sex linkage, and it can hit you hard at times, and you have to keep a tight grip on yourself to keep from succumbing to it. But you can do it if you try. Of course, I was being unfair to her. The sex-death linkage had no more relation to the glow I'd felt back in the lakeside tavern than it did now to her as an individual. I'd have felt the same stirring if I'd been guiding Joan out of the chart room with her head on my breast. More of a stirring because Joan was the one woman in the world for me. What it really meant was that the woman with the hair piled up high on her head filled me with a two-way sense of guilt. The life-sex linkage was better than the death-sex linkage, and the one and only woman feeling better than the promiscuous amorousness which any beautiful woman can arouse in the male. And right at that moment, she represented both of the more primitive aspects of sex. But the dice had just fallen that way. It wasn't her fault, and now she was close to hysteria, and needed reassurance, and all the comfort I could give her. As soon as we were out in the passageway, I asked her to tell me who she was, her name. So much had happened between us that it seemed unbelievable that I still didn't know that much about her. I thought I told you right after we left the spaceport, she said. I thought you knew. It's Helen, Helen Barclay. So, the old wonder name, the magical name, the topless towers of Ilium name. How often it seemed to go with her kind of woman. How could she have been Margaret or Janice or Barbara, attractive as those names were? Lilith, perhaps. Yes, or Eva. Because I've often felt that Eve must have been a woman of glamour, red-headed and with a temper a little on the fiery side. Because how else could she have come down to us as Earth's first legendary temptress? But otherwise, Helen, the glamour name that led the list. Why was I letting my mind go off at such an absurd tangent, when right ahead of me the stern obligation stream I've mentioned was widening out, filling with rapids, becoming a river which could have swallowed up the sky ship or wrecked it, if I failed to take up a giant stance right in the middle of it? Wade in and thrust the waters aside, Ralphie boy. It's your duty. Try to think of yourself as a giant. What made it tough was I didn't feel at all like a giant. But what had just happened in the chart room couldn't be ignored. A lot of questions would have to be asked fast, and if the explanations sounded like lies, if Helen Barclay refused to cooperate, some very drastic action might have to be taken. I hope she didn't have anything ugly to conceal. Just the thought was hateful to me, because I believed in her and trusted her. But the way I felt had nothing to do with an obligation I had no right to sidestep 
for as short a distance as the width of an electron microscope virus. I was glad that I wouldn't have to do the questioning. Not straight off, anyway. Not until I knew much more than I did. And all of the big, vital questions had been answered with candor, and I could go right on feeling the way I did about her, with a clear conscience. I hoped to God it would be with candor. If someone is dying, and you can do nothing to save him, and what he's done or hasn't done is of no importance to anyone but himself, you don't ply him with questions. But what she'd done or hadn't done could send the skyship down into the gulfs in flaming ruin because all of the passengers are encased in a fragile kind of bubble and the slightest pinprick could puncture it. The pinprick, for instance, of an Earthside conspirator traveling along with the bubble out into space and awaiting just the right moment to insert the tiny, darkly gleaming point of the pin under the skin of the bubble. And she wasn't dying, but alive, and could, if she had nothing to conceal, have no trouble in convincing the commander of the sky ship that any such fear was groundless. I had to take her straight to the commander. Otherwise, I'd have to take it up with someone of lesser authority and show him the insignia and question her myself in private. I couldn't see any advantage to be gained by that. It would leave the corpse in the chart room entirely unexplained and the commander would not take kindly to having anything as disturbing as that left lying around in a loose-end way for him to worry about. It would mean, of course, that I would have to show him the insignia. That was the bad part, the one thing I wanted most to avoid, but I could see no effective way of avoiding it now, because he was, after all, in command of the skyship and directly responsible for its safety. He had every right to be the first to question her, unless I chose to supplant that right with what the insignia represented. To do so would not have been wise for a dozen reasons, the chief one being that when a man is in a firm position to exercise reasonably high authority, it's always a mistake to go over his head, unless you're sure you can make a better job of it than he could, despite his specialized knowledge. I didn't think for a moment I could come anywhere near equaling Commander Littlefield's competence in guarding the safety of a Mars rocket. So, to curtail his authority in a high-handed way would have been worse than inexcusable. But I would still have to show him the insignia, or I would not be permitted to sit in on the questioning. We were at the end of the passageway now, and just by making a sharp left turn I could have taken her into the cabin section and introduced her to Joan. Perhaps, out of compassion, I should have done that. Let her relax in a lounge chair and look out at the cool, untroubled stars, and regain a little more of her composure. Some of it was coming back. She wasn't trembling quite so violently now. And women seemed to know better than men how to ease shock-engendered agitation, especially when it's another woman they have to soothe and sympathize with. I could trust Joan to handle it like an expert. Of course, you poor darling. I know just how you feel. Ralph will know what to do. Don't think about it. Just stay right here with us until Ralph comes back. It would have been the kind thing to do, all right. And for an instant I hesitated and almost committed an act of madness. When you've something to conceal, it's much easier to avoid a thoughtless admission 
a damaging slip of the tongue, when you've had time to collect your thoughts and decide in advance exactly how much of the truth is wise to reveal. She was too agitated now to guard against slips, and our chances of getting at the truth would be much better. And like the short-on-brains, over-chivalrous lug I could be on rare occasions, I hope they were rare, I'd almost torn it. End of chapter 7